Morning. You know, when I was a kid, American history was much less complicated. It worked like this. They were founding fathers, they were all great, we admired them, and they started America. And it made us feel better about ourselves as Americans. Weren't those guys great? Now, it's a lot more complicated. When we talk about the Founding Fathers, we have to, along with the positive things they did, always include all of the very bad things they did, and the foibles they had, and the time they spoke unkindly to their wife, and all of the other things. And to be honest, it actually starts to chip away at our own understanding of what it means if you are uh, a citizen of the United States of America, it, it chips away at it a little bit. It makes us feel bad about it. Do you know that revisionist history is not unique to our century? I know, it's a shock. But actually, in the time in which Paul was writing uh, to the Galatians, there was actually a version of revisionist history, and it had to do with the nature of how Abraham was considered right before God. You see, Paul is going to make a strong argument in our text uh, this morning, but the reason he's having to make that argument is because the Jewish scholars had increasingly suggested that Abraham was right before God because of his obedience. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the apocryphal books, those are books uh, that are not included uh, in our version of the Old Testament, but were certainly widely circulated, it says explicitly that Abraham was righteous before God because he fulfilled the law. Now, Paul's going to talk a little bit about that in the passage we're going to study next week. But this was a very popular reconstruction of how Abraham was right with God. It was wrong, however. And it was a wrong version of the way Abraham was right with God that was being taught to the Galatians, many people, as we reconstruct what must have been happening in these churches in Galatia was that these people came in, these teachers, after Paul, and they said, look, we want for you to be true children of Abraham. But you need to know Abraham was right with God, not because of his faith, but because he fulfilled the law of God. As a matter of fact, uh, the Jewish teachers of the day articulated uh, the ten different ways he fulfilled the ten uh, primary commandments that we call the Ten Commandments. And Paul says, I'm not sure that you're reading the same Old Testament that I am. Because here in our text, Paul wants us to understand what is the true essence of being a child of God. What are the implications of being a child of Abraham, excuse me? And thirdly, he's going to throw in a line about Abraham's favorite sermon. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at this text together. First of all, I want us to see the essence of being a child of Abraham. We began to look at this last week. It really begins in verse 6 as Paul seemingly in a, in a rather abrupt transition from talking about how the Galatians needed to remember that they actually received the blessings of God, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, miracles being worked among them, not because they had done any work, 
not because they had earned it or accomplished something that obligated God to give them something, but simply because they heard the word about Jesus and they received it with faith. And then he switches, and it's almost as though he's saying it's the same way with good old Abraham. We see that in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we mentioned this last week. Uh, there, that is a, a quote, quotation from Genesis uh, chapter 15. And Paul is saying, look, let's go back and let's examine the essence of what it means to be a child of Abraham. He says, if you want to be a child of Abraham, it has nothing to do with fulfilling the law or doing the works or being circumcised or a variety of other things these Galatians were being taught, but it is to believe the promises of God. It is to hear the word and receive it with faith. He says, this is how Abraham was made right before God. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important to the Galatians because they want to be included in the family of Abraham. I know. For us, we might be thinking, you know what? I haven't given a single thought this week about whether or not I am a, a, a legitimate or an appropriate child of Abraham. But understand that during this time in the first century, there was a unique protection for people who were connected to Judaism in the Roman Empire. They had a, effectively a, an allowed or legal religious status. So being connected to the uh, religion of Judaism allowed you certain belonging and privileges and protection in the state of Rome. And so being identified, not as some new thing, some new mystery religion that's popped up out of the woodwork of Galatia, but being connected to this ancient faith was of tremendous importance. And two, for a group of people who was made up of people who ethnically were Jewish and people who were ethnically everything but being connected with this same sort of identification, being a legitimate child of Abraham, was important. And Paul says, okay then, what is the essence of being a child of Abraham? Now, I, I'm sure in your family, there are certain family resemblances uh, that uh, are obvious in my family. Uh, they are... Uh, you know, sort of a round cheek and uh, obviously a lack of hair over time and, uh, you know, a variety of things, a certain angle of the nose. And so both of my children, when they were born, they looked like me, who looked like my mother, who looked like her mother, and so on. There were certain evidences that, wow, that is a kid, a Hodge kid for sure. But for Abraham... The key characteristic was that they put their hope in God simply through faith and not in what they had done. Now, I know that, uh, that for us this may seem disconnected. Let me connect the dot this way. Oftentimes when people read the Bible, they say, are there two ways God does stuff in the Bible? Did God do things differently in the Old Testament 
than he did them in the New Testament. And while certainly there are many different stories in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament, what Paul is saying is the essence is the same. That the way Abraham, the one who's called the father of the faith, the way he was made right with God is the same way that the Galatians were being made right with God. And that was through hearing the gospel and believing it, accepting it, trusting in it, and it alone for their salvation. And do you know that's the same way we're made right with God today? Sometimes the Old Testament seems so distant and foreign from us. You know, we get in there with all the baguettes and, you know, pages and pages of begetting and or those strange stories or the violence that's going on in the Old Testament. And we say to ourselves, what do we have to do with all of that? Well, we stand in the line of a gracious action that God does on behalf of His people by allowing them to be right with Him, not through what they do or how much they learn or what they've accomplished, but simply by trusting the offer of salvation through faith. That is the way Abraham and us are made right with God. For Paul, this is essential that the Galatians understand this. Because if you believe that the only way you can show the family resemblance to Abraham is by working your tail off, then you've misunderstood what the Old Testament teaches. And you will strive with all of this effort to have the family resemblance of law obedience, which is what people were teaching them. And he said, you're heading down the wrong track. You have forgotten the essence of being a child of Abraham. And sometimes we forget how we are made children of Abraham, how we are made right with God. Sometimes we fall into that same error, don't we? So let's consider as Paul unfolds this, some implications of being a child of Abraham. Now, I'm going to be honest, Paul writes a commentary on these verses about what the implications of being a child of Abraham are for us over in Romans chapter 4. There he expounds this same passage in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He expands it for us. And so in that expansion, we're going to basically let Paul comment on Paul. And just as a side note, when you study your Bible, this is the best way to study it. Let the Bible make its own commentary on the different passages that you're reading. In this particular case, it's a direct commentary on the same thing that Paul talks about. So if you have your Bible, you can look there, Romans chapter 4, and we're going to read the first, uh, let's read the first five verses. This is what Paul says there to the Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our father according to the flesh? That is, according to his own efforts, his, his work. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, 
His faith is counted as righteousness. Here, Paul is making a commentary. He says, look, you know, let's ask the question. You know, how was Abraham counted righteous? And first of all, he says he was counted righteous in a way that illustrates clearly that it was not a result of something he did to earn it, but it was simply a gift. Here, I love the way Paul comments on it. He says, look, we all know the difference between a gift and what we earn. Now, earlier uh, in this service, Don Roberts did a beautiful job of leading us in this service. And he always introduces himself as the pastor of administration. His subtitle is Pastor of Fun. But one of the, one of the many things that he does for our staff is he makes sure that we get paid. We get paid every other week. I know, you, you thought we all did this as a voluntary service. And we would do a good part of it as a voluntary service, but there are just a few things that we got to get paid for. So anyway, this part I would do for free, uh, but all the rest, yeah, I'm glad I get paid every other week. And so on Friday, whenever I recognized that uh, my automatic draft had entered into my account, you know, I didn't even have a single thought about driving over to Don and Lisa's house and giving him a big hug. Now, one, because that's not Don's thing, and he probably wouldn't appreciate that. But two, it's not like he sent me a Christmas present. He simply made sure that I got paid what I was supposed to get paid. I got paid as a result of the time that I worked. Some of you got paid this week. Did anybody hug their boss to thank them for their paycheck this week. Now, if you're married to your boss, just hugging them for other reasons does not count. Any boss hugging going on, I know you're like, I don't think we're supposed to admit that. I think me or my boss would get in trouble for that, right? And, and you would, right? No, nobody hugged their boss. Why? Because we worked for that money. But if somebody this week gave you a fantastic gift... If, if they gave you that gift card to Amazon or, you know, the lifetime supply of Starbucks coffee or whatever it is that you're jam, you probably thank them. You may have even gone to the Hallmark store and written a nice thank you note. Why? Because you, shockingly enough, know the difference between receiving a gift, something you did not work for, and then getting a payment for something you did work for. Paul says to understand one of the aspects or characteristics of being a child of Abraham is keeping clear in your mind the difference between getting paid what you're owed and receiving a gift. He said, Abraham, in being declared righteous before God, did not get compensated for his labor, but instead he received it as a gift. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a very helpful distinction. And sometimes I forget that this is one of the key implications of being a child of Abraham, is that God owes me nothing, but my relationship with him is purely a gift of grace. Paul says that's an implication. There's a second implication that goes with that. 
that we see there in Romans chapter 4, and that is that boasting is excluded. Do you see how Paul says it? Paul, we'll talk about this later in Galatians, but I think it's important to bring it up uh, even here. In verse 2 of Romans chapter 4, it says, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, uh, but not before God. What is Paul saying? When we recognize that we're right with God, not because of how hard we worked or how good-looking we are or how smart we are or whatever other way that you think that we can earn God's favor, when we recognize that we are accepted before God and are given eternal life in Jesus Christ simply as a gift given to us because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are humble. We are humbled. What did I contribute? To being right with God? The answer is nothing. Nothing. I simply received it as a gift, which is why it is so offensive, not just to the people sitting here this morning, but it is offensive to everyone out there in the world when people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ act proud and cocky. What do we have to boast about? Nothing. We only boast in Jesus. That's it. Now, let's do a little self-reflection on this characteristic of being a child of God. So who did you boast about more this week? You or Jesus? Who, who, who got the most pats on the back? You or Jesus. Or if you're like me, my boasting sort of has this inverted feel to it. Who did you have the most self-pity about this week? Now, see, that's my very thinly veiled boasting. When I have the little pity party, does he? Uh, maybe not a show of hands. So in your heart, nod your head. Any, any self-pity party people out there? Man, I can have self-pity parties better than anybody. I have a special tea just for my self-pity party. I mean, all, I'm all over. And when I have a self-pity party, what am I actually doing? On the surface, it looks like I am actually dogging on myself. I'm saying bad things about myself. But when I'm having a self-pity party, what I'm really doing is saying effectively, either in my heart or out loud, so that my poor wife has to listen to it, if only everyone else saw how great I was, my life would be better. Isn't that a, the essence of a self-pity party? If only everybody else knew how much I did and how hard I worked and how smart I was and, you know, my impeccable taste and fill in the blank. And what is that? But a strange version of boasting. And so the answer to my self-pity party is repentance. It's to repent of thinking that I actually am the one who has done everything or earned everything or merits everything. And recognize that only God's grace given to me and received by faith, that's it. I have nothing. 
So a characteristic of a child of Abraham, according to Paul's commentary over in Romans chapter 4, is that we should not be boasters. Thirdly, and I'm, I'm taking this from two sources. One is my old dean of my divinity school, Timothy George, and the other is a really old dead guy named Martin Luther, who is a 16th century reformer, uh, that when they look at this story back in Genesis chapter 15, uh, there they see that there's one other characteristic of being a child of Abraham. And that is that at least in some sense, we have to be able to overcome reason. Now, I told somebody earlier today I was going to say this, and I want to be clear because I know I've got a lot of faith is reasonable people out here. And I also was taught by R.C. Sproul, and I think he even had a book called The Reasonable Faith or something like that. And it is. There is a lot of reasonable, you know, sort of ways to understand the faith. But for Abraham, his faith was contra reason in this sense. In Genesis chapter 15... When God comes to him and says, look, I know it looks bleak. I know it looks like, you know, one of your distant relatives is going to inherit everything you have. I know you're getting old. You're getting close to 100 years old. I know your wife is well past the age of childbearing. And yet, he says, look at the stars and see if you can count them so will your offspring be. Now, for Abraham to believe, he has to overcome everything his reason is telling him. His reason is saying, I am way too old to have kids. His reason is saying, Sarah is, she might be hot, but she is definitely way too old to have children. Isn't that the funny thing? Every time I read the story of Abraham and Sarah, I'm like, just how good looking was Sarah? like well past the age of childbearing and still being kidnapped as somebody's harem. Just a whole side note, you can think about that today, later on. Might have been good looking, but well past the age of childbearing. And to be honest, his reason would have been saying it's not like we haven't been trying. We've been trying not for days or weeks or months, but for decades to have a child. Do you believe that for Abraham to take God at his word, he had to overcome his reason? Martin Luther says it beautifully. It's a very long quote, so I wrote it down. He says, faith kills reason and slays the beast, which the whole world and all creatures cannot kill. So Abraham killed it by faith in the word of God by which seed was promised to him through Sarah, who was barren and now past childbearing. Reason did not yield immediately, but it fought against faith in him, judging it an absurd and impossible thing that Sarah, now 90 years of age, should bear a son. Thus faith wrestled with reason in Abraham. But faith got the victory and finally killed and crucified reason, that most cruel and pestilent enemy of God. So all the godly, entering like Abraham into the darkness of faith, can kill reason, saying, Reason, you are foolish. You do not savor those things that be of God. Therefore speak not against me, but hold your peace. Judge not, but hear the word of God and believe it. 
I'm going to give you that last part again. Isn't that the best? I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a big fan of not just listening to yourself, but talking to yourself. And here, when you are struggling, in, in those times where believing in God seems to be just the opposite of rational, because circumstances have come against you. The diagnosis was the opposite of what you were expecting. The prognosis is short and painful. Or the news from your mom or dad or child or sibling is dire. And it is hard in that moment to rationalize a continued trust and the complete and perfect sovereign grace of God. It is difficult to do in those moments. We need to be able to talk to our reason. Here, I'll give it to you again. Here's a, uh, if you need it, you can email me. I'll send you the quote. Reason, you are foolish. You do not savor those things that be of God. Therefore, speak not against me, but hold your peace. Judge not but hear the word of God and believe it. Aren't there times where we show that we are children of Abraham because we say, I know it doesn't make 100% sense, but God's word says it. And I'm going to believe it. And if you're an old Baptist boy like me, you'd say, and that settles it. Right? It may not make sense, but it's the Word of God. And I'm going to rest on it. See, this is a characteristic of a child of Abraham. It's so helpful for us. Lastly, I want us to talk about Abraham's favorite sermon. Back to Paul's treatment of Galatians 15 here in Galatians chapter 3. Notice that it says uh, in verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, I love it. I, I have done many uh, funerals. I've not done as many as Carl, uh, but I've done many, many services. And one of my favorite things to do in a service is if the deceased is a follower of Jesus Christ, and they have like an old Bible that's marked up with their thoughts or un passages that are underlined, you know, multiple times, pages that are almost coming apart because of how many times that person visited them. And when I have that, I know for certain that I can say in front of a, a group of grieving friends and family, this is one of this person's favorite passages. Here Paul says that Abraham, good old father Abraham, had a favorite sermon. And what was it? He says it was the gospel proclaimed beforehand to him. What is he talking about? Just as a side note, isn't it interesting how Paul says this in verse 8? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What, what does that mean? This the Scriptures foresaw. Now here, of course, Paul is kind of bringing two concepts together. Uh, one is that God is the divine author of the whole Bible. And so God was able to write things thousands of years earlier that would be fulfilled only through the life, the perfect life, the sin-paying 
death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, even though it was thousands of years earlier, God wrote or had written through the inspiration of the writers of the Old Testament, he foresaw, in other words, he knew what would happen, and he spoke it through the Scriptures. Now, just this total side note, what a great encouragement about the authority and uh, the veracity of the Bible. In other words, what it says is true, and we can depend upon it. Because here Paul can almost personify it, and in doing so, he's really talking about God, that it foresaw that something amazing would happen in the future. And what did Scripture foresee? It foresaw that Gentiles would come into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. For those of you who think the New Testament just popped out of nowhere, you you would not be buddies with Paul on this point. Because Paul is saying all those scriptures of the Old Testament, they're pointing to that beautiful truth that people like you and me would be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And I love what he says. That was Abraham's favorite sermon. He heard the gospel. That's good news. He heard the good news through the promises of God. And that is is so encouraging. Now here he quotes a a passage that is sort of a combination of Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, which is in the middle of the big promises that God makes to Abraham. I'll make you, uh, I'll give you a great name, I'll make you a great nation, I'll give you a great land, and all the nations will be blessed through you. But it's also in Genesis chapter 18, in a very interesting story, uh, when God comes in the, in the, uh, along with some angels to talk to Abraham about what's about to ha- happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. But in the middle of this text, in Genesis chapter 18, uh, I'll start in verse 17. Uh, it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Here God is proclaiming the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham, you, through a faith like yours, all of the nations will be blessed. He says, I'm not going to hide, I'm not going to hide this thing I'm about to do because of this great reality that's going to happen through Abraham, which is so amazing. Now, I know we say, what What does that mean? It means that God in this beautiful and in this kernel of a way is proclaiming that all of his promises are going to be fulfilled, not just so that it's a benefit to Abraham, but that it will be a benefit to all of his biological children and their children and their children. But through the faith that Abraham has, it will bless people all over the world. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. And do you realize that that is the, 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 this proto-expression of the great commission that the church is all about? This is not a new idea that Jesus came up with in Matthew 28. But Jesus is saying, everything that was said to Abraham is fulfilled in me and through the witness of the church, is going to be spread in all the world. Isn't that amazing? 
I don't know why, but stuff like this just makes me love this book all the more, right? Jesus had a keen understanding of this. There was a time that he was in a debate uh, with the Pharisees, of course, uh, in his time, and he had this great line that he threw out uh, that uh, we'll... we'll, uh, Let's start in verse 55 of John chapter 8. But you have not known him, referring to God. I know him. And I keep his word. And then in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said said to him, You're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here, what does Jesus say? Jesus, Jesus is saying that Abraham, even though he lived thousands of years earlier, his favorite sermon was about the coming of Jesus. I'm going to let your mind just soak on that for a second. His favorite sermon was about how the promise would be fulfilled. He says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Why? Because it's the fulfillment of his favorite sermon. That all the nations would be blessed through a faith like his. And, oh, this should be our favorite sermon. Notice what Paul says as he completes this part of our text. He says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I don't know how you feel about the family you're from. I think sitting in this room, there are people with probably all kinds of feelings about that. For some of us, it, it is total positive. For us, others of us, we would prefer not to think about it. But what I can tell you is in terms of the family of faith, you can be excited that you stand in the line of this family. That you have the opportunity to, decla- to be declared right with God, not because of your work or because of something that had to be paid to you, but simply because you received it by faith as a gift. And in doing so, you are not alone in this world, but you stand in line with a great family of faith that goes all the way back thousands of years to Abraham. And so even if you have the greatest family background, you can say, I am a part of a greater and older family of the family of faith. And if you come from a family that is more pain than positive, you can say, praise God, I have a family of faith that I stand in line of, a thou- of thousands of years that I belong to the family of faith because I have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. I've heard the good news, and I believed it. This morning, we have an opportunity to come to the table to reiterate our dependence upon that good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God will prepare our hearts as we come to the table. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that we are not people who are making it up as we go. We are not people who popped out of nowhere, but we are members of of the family of Abraham. Not because we're genetically connected to him, but because we share a dependence upon your word and promise because we have taken you at your word that we can be right with you through trusting in Jesus Christ. I pray, O Lord,
that you will continue to work out of us those things that might look like family characteristics, but are really the opposite of the way we are in the family of faith, and that we may instead feed upon the hope of the gospel. May we do that even now as we come to the table. Lord, may we come in faith and find the nourishing power and strength of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.